trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hi there, and welcome to the show. You may be asking yourself, what's this guy's angle? Come on, Brian, what are you really trying to accomplish here? All right, I'll just put my cards on the table. What I'm trying to accomplish here is I am trying to uh, bring truth and light forward, the better to enable you to live as a free person. See, I I have this cockamamie idea stuck in my head that neither you nor me were ever meant to wear somebody else's saddle. I don't think we are. I think that uh, I think we're supposed to be, uh, you know, living as free individuals, uh, pursuing happiness, you know, as we best decide, uh, peacefully, of course. Anything peaceful really should be on the table. And it seems like there's a very concerted effort to uh, prevent that from happening. A lot of people have that idea that, well, if, uh, if we just have enough central planning and uh, with this clipboard and these rules, I am going to run the world including making all the decisions that you and I rightly should be making for ourselves. So, with that in mind, I have some uh, some carefully picked, carefully curated content that I am going to be uh, sharing with you in this hour that will hopefully uh, equip you with the uh, philosophical and intellectual ammunition to uh, to claim your freedom, right? To claim it, to use it, defend it as necessary. And I want to start with, uh, with something that, this may sound a little bit facetious, but in case you hadn't noticed, We've been living under a pretty strong Big Brother vibe for the better part of the last year. And I saw this uh, essay recently from Barry Brownstein reminding us that Big Brother depends on little brothers. Check this out. He says, thanks to to the CDC, many children will be robbed again of a formative summer camp experience. According to the 2021 CDC Irrational COVID Summer Camp Guidelines, everyone at the camp including staff, and every kid over the age of two must wear masks at all times, unless they're eating or swimming. Now, the guidelines include continued social distancing, limited interaction, bans on some sports. Reactions from health experts have been harsh. One called the guidance cruel to our children. Another added irrational recommendations will do no good, could in this case do harm, and really discredit federal agencies. So the question is, will summer camp directors follow the CDC guidelines? Barry Brownstein says we can empathize with camp directors. They're walking a tightrope. State health authorities may demand compliance with CDC guidelines. Their insurance carrier may demand compliance. Campers' parents may have conflicting views. We can understand why camp directors are likely to avoid potential liability and just follow CDC guidance. Nobody gets fired for buying IBM as an old adage in business. Play it safe and make the choice others are making. Or rock the boat and suffer potential repercussions because you didn't follow the herd. So he asks, will camp directors buy IBM, follow the CDC's Big Brother guidance, and become little brothers? Because Big Brother has no power without many little brothers willing to follow. Barry Brownstein writes, in April, Dr. Nicole Spire wrote in the Wall Street Journal, quote, public health officials and politicians risk a public rebellion if they don't start taking common sense into account 
and instead persist in labeling anyone who questions their decrees anti-science. After more than a year of restrictions, they should prioritize getting back to normal. End quote. Writing in the Harvard Business Review, Gary Hamill and Michelle Zanini observe that bureaucracy saps initiative, inhibits risk-taking, and crushes creativity. They call bureaucracy a tax on human achievement. In his book, Bureaucracy, Ludwig von Mises explains why decision-makers can never make good decisions when they operate without the market signals of profit and loss. Mises writes, A socialist management would be like a man forced to spend his life blindfolded. Now, Barry Brownstein says an April 2021 article in Nature further illuminates why CDC bureaucrats continue to issue nonsensical guidance and ignore voices like Spire's. The human mind is biased in favor of adding solutions in order to achieve outcomes. Authors of the Nature Study found that in decision-making, people systematically overlook subtractive changes. The authors of the study report experimental evidence showing it's uncommon for decision-makers to solve problems by subtracting existing regulations, practices, or programs. Tom Mavis and Hee-Young Yoon an analyzed findings reported in the Nature article, and they explained the reason why participants in the experiments offered so few subtractive solutions isn't because they didn't recognize the value of those solutions, but because they failed to consider them. Frequent previous exposure to additive solutions has made them more cognitively accessible and thus more likely to be considered. So in short, people are prone to apply a what-can-we-add-here heuristic, a default strategy to simplify and speed up decision-making, and this heuristic can be overcome by exerting extra cognitive effort to consider other, less intuitive solutions. Now, Mivis and Yoon offer additional reasons explaining the bias to favor additive solutions and not consider subtracting what interferes with improved outcomes. Bureaucrats looking to advance their career might believe subtractive solutions are also less likely to be appreciated and thus expect to receive less credit for subtractive solutions than for additive ones. Mivis and Yoon suggest policymakers and organizational leaders could explicitly solicit and value proposals that reduce rather than add. For organizations needing to meet the market test of serving consumers, this is actionable advice. And the same advice is unlikely to be considered in government bureaucracies, where once a program is established, it rarely dies. So he says the CDC will not be disappearing anytime soon. Don't expect the CDC to look for subtractive solutions. Instead, they'll continue to exploit the bias favoring additive solutions. Even worse, the media and big tent, big tech rather, have essentially banned dialogue about subtractive solutions to COVID problems. So if normalcy is to return, it will happen as more individuals refuse to be little brothers obeying CDC's big brother edicts and start engaging in open conversations untainted by the bias favoring additive solutions. And from here he goes into how to not be a little brother. Dr. Joost Mierlu was a Dutch-American psychiatrist who escaped from a Nazi prison in occupied Holland. His book, The Rape of the Mind, The Psychology of Thought Control, Menticide, and Brainwashing, explores how totalitarian societies brainwash their citizens. Although written in 1956, Mierlu provides timeless lessons for resisting authoritarian pressures in contemporary COVID times. Mirlu explained how Stalinist Russia, Nazi Germany, and other totalitarian societies used primitive Pavlovian strategies to control the population. He who dictates and formulates the words and phrases we use, he who is master of the press and radio, 
is master of the mind. Mirlu writes, freedom of discussion and free intellectual exchange hinder conditioning. Feelings of terror, feelings of fear and hopelessness, of being alone, of standing with one's back to the wall must be instilled. For many today, fear and hopelessness are frequent companions. In our cancel culture, free intellectual exchange is difficult. Barry Brownstein asks, why is big tech scrubbing even the most innocuous of alternative views? Mirlu explains why. The mind that is open for questions is open for dissent. In the totalitarian regime, the doubting, inquisitive, and imaginative mind has to be suppressed. The totalitarian slave is only allowed to memorize to salivate when the bell rings. And Mirlu adds, to the degree that the individual is made an object of constant mental manipulation, to the degree that the cultural institutions may tend to weaken intellectual and spiritual strength, to the degree that knowledge of the mind is used to tame and condition people instead of educating them, to that degree does the culture itself produce men and women who are predisposed to accept an authoritarian way of life. The man who has no mind of his own can easily become the pawn of a would-be dictator. End quote. So Barry Brownstein says the, the Pavlovian strategy encourages herding behavior as people are conditioned more and more to ask themselves, what do other people think? Mirlu continues, as a result, a common delusion is created. People are incited to think what other people think, and thus public opinion may mushroom out into a mass prejudice. Expressed in psychoanalytic terms, through daily propagandistic noise backed up by forceful, forceful verbal cues, people can more and more be forced to identify with the powerful noisemaker. Chillingly, Mirlu writes, Big Brother's voice resounds in all the little brothers. Today, little brothers are all too ready to repeat bromides they've heard from Dr. Fauci and media-favored experts. Mirlu writes, the specialists in the art of persuasion may water down the spontaneity and creativity of thoughts and ideas into sterile and streamlined cliches that direct our thoughts, even though we still have the illusion of being original and individual. i got to put the brakes on here because we're coming up on the break, but I, I will have a link to this article from Barry Brownstein in today's show notes. You can access them at thebrianhydeshow.com. Again, this is show notes for May 13th, 2021. Who knows? Maybe someday someone's going to be listening to this years down the road. What were they thinking? Well, I can't guarantee that everybody was thinking this way, but at least some of us were thinking along these lines. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, thanks for hanging with us today. I'm glad you're part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. Coming back to this article from Barry Brownstein, Big Brother Depends on Little Brothers. I don't know, I've I've been kind of chafing at this whole Big Brother vibe I've been feeling for the better part of the last year. And so I'm, I'm really enjoying Barry's essay on this. He is quoting from an author... Uh, by the name of uh, Dr. Joost Mirlu, a Dutch-American psychiatrist who escaped from a Nazi prison in occupied Holland and who wrote a book called The Rape of the Mind, The Psychology of Thought Control, Menticide, and Brainwashing. 
Now, Mirlu writes, Big Brother's voice resounds in all the little brothers. That's why we have little brothers all too ready to repeat the bromides they've heard from Dr. Fauci and other media-favored experts. Mirlu says, The specialists in the art of persuasion may water down spontaneity and creativity of thoughts and ideas into sterile, streamlined cliches that direct our thoughts, even though we have the illusion of still being original and individual. And the result of this, as Mirlu observes, is in totalitarian countries, the self-thinking, subjective man has disappeared. Peaceful exchange of free thoughts and free conversation will disturb the conditioned reflexes and is therefore taboo. No longer are there any brains, just conditioned patterns and educated muscles. The mental automaton becomes the ideal of education. Now, Mirlu has advice for those not living in totalitarian countries. We must avoid the personal mindset temptations that lead the way to totalitarianism. Okay, so this is, here's the key. This is the important part. You and I really can't control what politicians are doing, right? We can fume at them. We can shake our fist and turn purple with rage. But really, if you want to avoid the mindset that leads totalitarianism into power and keeps it in power, it's got to start with people like you and me rejecting those thoughts and rejecting those manipulations. Mirlu says, free men in a free society must learn to not only recognize this stealthy attack on mental integrity and fight it, but must also learn what there is inside man's mind that makes him vulnerable to this attack. What it is that makes him, in many cases, actually long for a way out of the responsibilities that Republican democracy and maturity place on him. Escaping from responsibility seduces many. Merely writes, the pressures of daily life impel more and more people to seek an easy escape from responsibility and maturity. Indeed, it is difficult to withstand these pressures. To many, the offer of a political panacea is very tempting. To others, the offer of escape through alcohol, drugs, or other artificial pleasures is irresistible. And merely warns, unknowingly, we may become opinionated robots. He says, we search for situations that create superficial fear to cover up inner anxieties. We like to escape into the irrational because we dislike the challenge of self-study and self-thinking. Our leisure time is occupied increasingly by automatized activities in which we take no part. Listening to piped-in words and viewing television screens, we hurry along with cars and go to bed with a sleeping pill. Now, Barry Brownstein says, merely warned that many free minds have given up the struggle for decency and individuality. They surrender to the zeitgeist often without even being aware of it. Public opinion molds our critical thoughts every day. So as an antidote, Dr. Mirlu counsels spiritual bravery, a mental courage that goes beyond the self. It serves an idea. It asks for a hyper-consciousness of the self as a thinking spiritual being. He writes, Spiritual bravery is not found among the conformists or among those who preach uniformity or among those who plead for smooth social adjustment. It requires continual mental alertness and spiritual strength to resist the dragging current of conformist thought. Man has to be stronger than the mere will for self-protection and self-assertion. He has to be able to go beyond himself in the service of an idea and to be able to acknowledge loyally that he has been wrong when higher values are found. Indeed, there is a spiritual courage that goes beyond all automatic reflex action. End quote. 
So Barry Brownstein concludes by saying financial, social, or other pressures might make you feel like you can't resist Big Brother. But he says resistance starts gently by recognizing our own mental processes that make us vulnerable to the current of conformist thought. With mental alertness, he says, we attune ourselves to spiritual strength. With self-study, we prepare for peaceful exchange of ideas with those currently choosing to be little brothers. He says there's still enough freedom in America that without the support of little brothers, Big Brother will find it has no power of its own. This is seriously one of the most empowering things I have read in a while. And and I'm looking for that kind of stuff every single day. Again, this is from Barry Brownstein. Big Brother depends on little brothers. I guess the, the task before you and me is we have to make ourselves unplayable pieces on that chessboard. This is really good advice. All right, moving on. I'm a big believer in the adage, one of the most activist things we can do, in addition to asserting our own you know, autonomy, is to raise children who are clear and independent thinkers. Now, this is kind of scary for people of a controlling nature. And I don't know if you remember this, uh, Carrie McDonald from the Foundation for Economic Education last year had the opportunity to interview, I'm not, not interview rather, but to debate a Harvard law professor who was pushing for some kind of a national crackdown on homeschooling, essentially saying homeschooling is dangerous. We don't even know what these parents are teaching these kids. Are these kids being taught unapproved ideas? Now, I'm hoping most people would be like, wait a minute. What do you mean unapproved ideas? According to whom? Well, guess what? The professor is back, and Carrie McDonald once again has an excellent article on how the prospect of homeschooling is bringing out this professor's latent authoritarianism. I picked this up off of everything-voluntary.com. The article is titled, Harvard Prof Asks Biden to Reform Our Current Homeschooling Regime. And Carrie explains, here's the problem with her proposal. She says, many of you remember this time last spring when Harvard Magazine published its interview with Harvard Law School professor Elizabeth Bartholay, who called for a presumptive ban on homeschooling. Well, that article went viral among homeschoolers and others who value educational freedom and parental rights. Carrie says, I immediately responded with an alumna letter to the editor and ultimately had the opportunity to debate Professor Bartholay live last June. She says, here are some of the things I learned from that debate. Nearly one year to the day after the original Harvard Magazine article appeared, a new Harvard piece profiled Professor Bartholay. Her her opinions remain unchanged. In fact, if anything, she's doubled down on her belief that government must be heavily involved in child-rearing and education. In the April 30th interview with Harvard Law Today, Bartholay praised President Biden's proposed expansion of government-funded preschool for three- and four-year-olds. It will protect the most vulnerable children against abuse and neglect by getting them into settings on a daily basis where they are seen by school personnel who are mandated to report suspected maltreatment to Child Protective Services, said Professor Bartholay. She continued by suggesting that the Biden administration should get involved to reform our current homeschooling regime. Now, currently, homeschooling policy is decided at the state and local levels. And as Kerry has previously written, there is no constitutional role for the federal government in education. 
But that didn't stop Barthelay, who, in her lengthy Arizona Law Review article last year that preceded the Harvard Magazine spotlight, called the U.S. Constitution outdated and inadequate. She argued that the U.S. should move its existing focus on negative rights or individuals being free from state intervention to positive rights, where the state takes a much more active role in citizens' lives. And she looked at Europe for inspiration, particularly to Germany, where homeschooling is illegal. All right, we got to pause here because we're up against the break. Oh, my word. If nothing else, you're going to get a great example of what legal positivism versus legal negativism is all about. Just remember, your rights protect you from government power. What Professor Barthelay is talking about is increased obligations to the government. Not such a great idea. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. I am sharing an article here from Carrie McDonald. She is an education fellow with the Foundation for Economic Education and... Uh, one of my go-to sources. I, I like what Carrie has to say on educational choice. I love her take on unschooling and homeschooling. And she's talking about this uh, Harvard professor who is petitioning the president, asking the president to step in and reform our current homeschooling regime. Why? Because there's just not enough government oversight to, uh, to settle her nerves. In fact, Carrie says in her, in her recent interview, Professor Barthelay restated her ad- advocacy for homeschooling limits and called on the Biden administration to help rein in homeschooling freedoms. Barthelay said there is now no meaningful regulation of homeschooling in the United States, by contrast to the rest of the world. Parents are free to keep their children from school and teach them whatever they choose or nothing. They are free to subject them to the most vicious forms of abuse, away from the eyes of teachers who are required to report suspected abuse to Child Protective Services. If the Biden administration is truly committed to educational reform in our nation's schools, it should do something to address the needs of children kept out of schools entirely by parents who may have no commitment or ability to provide even the basics of an education. End quote. That is a lot of statist malarkey in one big pile right there. Uh, Not to be outdone by Harvard, Carrie says a Yale professor also recently got in on the act of attacking homeschoolers, particularly religious ones. Sociologist Philip Gorski wrote on Twitter that Christian homeschooling was and is often, if not always, a major vector of white Christian nationalism. Oh my. By the way, he has since made his Twitter account private. Carrie says homeschoolers are accustomed to smears and stereotypes and will continue to stand up for their right to raise and educate children as they choose, free from government interference. And this is what's so maddening to champions of homeschooling regulation who believe that government, and particularly government schools, are best for children. They seem to ignore the poor academic outcomes, child abuse by teachers, and widespread peer bullying and assaults that plague district schools. Despite the failure of government schools to protect many children from harm, homeschooling opponents still believe that the government should have more oversight over homeschooled children to protect them from potential harm. This comes even as research suggests that homeschooled children are less likely to be abused than their schooled peers. 
This shouldn't be surprising as homeschooling parents are often choosing homeschooling while making significant personal sacrifices to ensure their child's safety and well-being. Carrie says, this reminds me of one of my favorite quotes by Fee President Emeritus Lawrence Reed. Quote, It constantly amazes me that defenders of the free market are expected to offer certainty and perfection while the government only has to make promises and express good intentions. Many times, for instance, I've heard people say a free market in education is a bad idea because some child somewhere might fall through the cracks. Even though in today's government schools, millions of children are falling through the cracks every day. End quote. Kerry says government doesn't know best. Families know best. And she says, I will continue to push back against homeschooling opponents and other government schooling activists who seek to limit a family's educational freedom and choice. And she says, I hope you will join me. She's really good. And she has a message well worth considering. I'll have a link to this in the show notes. Be sure to check it out at thebrianheidshow.com. All right, here's, uh, th- this is one of the concerns, and this is one of the reasons why I think a lot of parents may be considering homeschooling who weren't doing it before, and that is one of the more insidious ideologies being force-fed to the public these days is critical race theory. And there is a very strong push at the national level, at the federal level, to start implementing this into public education. James Lindsay has one of the most concise and direct warnings about what CRT is, and why we should think twice before allowing ourselves to be indoctrinated into it. And I've got to thank my friend, uh, Dr. Shannon Brooks from Monticello College, for providing a transcript of the uh, PragerU video by James Lindsay, which explains critical race theory. James Lindsay says, Have you heard about critical race theory? I'm guessing you probably have. It has already insinuated itself into many institutions and is making rapid progress into others. If it takes hold, he says, it will completely change the very nature of America and the way you live. By the way, that's not hyperbole. Critical race theory holds that the most important thing about you is your race, the color of your skin. That's who you are. Not your behavior, not your values, not your environment, your race. In critical race theory, he says, if you're a member of a minoritized racial group, their term, he says, not mine, You are a victim of a system that is rigged against you, a system that doesn't want you to succeed. On the other hand, if your race is privileged, you're an exploiter, whether you intend to be or not. Critical race theory begins from the assumption that racism occurs in all interactions. So to see how this works, consider this thought experiment. Imagine you own a shop and two customers enter at the same time, one white and one black. Who do you help first? If you help the black person first, critical race theory would say, well, you did so because you don't trust black people to be left alone in your store. That's racist. If you helped the white person first instead, critical race theory would say, you did so because you think blacks are second-class citizens. That's racist too. So that's critical race theory, meaning it can find racism in anything, even if it has to read your mind to do it. He says, critical race theory is a uniquely American intervention, brewed up at Harvard Law School in the 70s, now part of the academic and media mainstream. It is also uniquely un-American because it rejects the core tenets of the American classically liberal Judeo-Christian value system. It turns the bedrock American idea upside down. Here it is in the words of Richard Delgado and Jean Stefanik. 
two leading proponents, quote, critical race theory questions the very foundations of the liberal order, including equality theory, legal reasoning, enlightenment rationalism, and the neutral principles of constitutional law, end quote. And it does this because critical race theory proponents assume racism is present everywhere and always, and they look for it critically until they find it. And they always find it. It has to be there because that's how the imperial European powers and then America set things up. Now here, as in all dangerous academic theories, there is a kernel of truth. Human beings were not preoccupied with race until the 16th century, when Europeans began to explore and then colonize other parts of the world. Drawing distinctions between the races reached its peak in the 19th century with the widespread use of slave labor in North and South America. No one denies this. But since then, the Western world, and most especially America, has spent a lot of time, money, and blood breaking free of its racist past. It's been a rocky road for sure, but great progress has been made. Critical race theory says all this progress is a mirage. Racism never died, never even faded just a little bit. It just hid itself better. Critical race theory, therefore, is not a continuation of the civil rights movement. It is, in fact, a repudiation of it. To critical race theorists, Martin Luther King was both wrong and naive. White Americans can never judge blacks by the content of their character. They can only judge them always unfavorably, consciously or unconsciously, by the color of their skin. Now, ironically, not since the Aryan obsession in Germany in the 1930s and 1940s, or South African apartheid in the second half of the 20th century, has a social movement been so obsessed with race. Critical race theory is then, in a very real sense, a counter-American revolution. But that's a positive, not a negative, to those who subscribe to the theory. The American experiment was given a 400-year tryout, and it doesn't work. So let's scrap it. That's what they believe. Now the question is, is that what you believe? And he says, I'm going to guess that most of you don't. How do we stop critical race theory before it infects the brains of too many decent Americans, especially young people, and turns us into something we have never been and shouldn't ever want to be? Well, he says the answer is simple. Refuse to accept it. Don't be intimidated by the heads-I-win-tails-you-lose logic of this self-destructive, America-hating, anti-reality idea. Don't be bullied into thinking that you're racist when you know that you're not. Or that you're a victim when you know that you're not. In fact, he says, defend yourself while you still can. Again, this is James Lindsay from PragerU. Uh, this is a transcript of the video that he did. I'll have a link to uh, Shannon Brooks's page. He's got links in here as well uh, if you want to see the original video. You don't have to go to battle with people so much as you just have to be willing to stand up for yourself. The crazy thing about it is I've seen people, even people who... Uh, tend to lean towards, you know, hey, I'm, a, I'm an advocate for freedom. I'm, I'm a, a staunch defender of people's personal, you know, freedom and autonomy. And yet I've seen them become um, angry, caricatures, one-dimensional, you know, cartoons of themselves by embracing, even in part, this critical race theory. And of course, by me pointing that out, they would say, well, of course, white, privileged, cisgendered, male... You're just mansplaining all of this to us. They wouldn't believe for a moment that I'm actually speaking up in defense of their freedoms as well as everybody else's. 
That's a pretty insidious ideology that can twist minds like that. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And once again, welcome back to the show. Just a quick shout out and thanks to our sponsors. They include pure-light.com. The most remarkable light bulbs that uh, you probably haven't heard of until now. I encourage you to click on the link in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Also, thanks to hslammo.com and monticellocollege.org. It's wonderful to have these sponsors. Whether you need their service or you need their product right this moment or not, if you are so inclined, find the time to drop them a quick note. You can, you can contact them through the links that I provide in my show notes, but just let them know. Their message is reaching your ears via this platform. And I'll thank you in advance for doing so. Well, proposed vaccine passports seem to be gaining traction as the necessary proof that you are fit to travel, to work, or maybe even attend mass gatherings. Uh, J.D. Tussle, writing for Reason.com, says, hey, be careful. And the, the excuse he gives here of being careful is, hey, these vaccine passports are likely to far outlast the pandemic that some are using to justify their creation. Here's what he has to say. He says, with support from politicians, businesses, and the public, vaccine passports, in other words, formalized proof of health status, appear to be inevitable, at least for travel and for attending large events. But as competing offerings try to accommodate rival priorities and expectations, no single standard is near wide acceptance. In short, vaccine passports appear destined to become part of everyday life, but probably only in limited application and after the COVID-19 pandemic that spurred their development is long gone. A new Ipsos survey for the World Economic Forum finds that on average, about three in four adults across 28 countries agree that COVID-19 vaccine passports should be required of travelers to enter their country, that they would be effective in making travel and large events safe. That's what the polling firm announced at the end of April. Now, Gallup also found U.S. adults favor mandated vaccination certification for travel by airplane and to attend events with large crowds like concerts or sporting events. After that, though, polling finds a steep drop in support for requiring proof of health before people are allowed to go about their lives. Specifically, majorities of Americans in Gallup's survey oppose requiring proof of vaccination for people headed to the workplace, hotel stays, or restaurants. Proof of vaccination for work seems to be a non-starter in particular. While no jab, no job may trend as a search term, few businesses are interested in antagonizing employees with a vaccination requirement. Mercer found in a February survey of employers, less than 1% of survey respondents have actually decided to implement a mandate. Only 20% say they're even considering it. Encouraging and incentivizing employees to get their shots has much more support than requiring them to prove they're vaccinated for COVID-19. By the way, I think I was, uh, I heard uh, uh, Neil Larson on his radio show yesterday talking about uh, a big employer in southeast Idaho, uh, Simplot not only requiring their employees to receive the COVID vaccination, but actually saying, if you are a third-party vendor, 
that in some way does business with Simplot, you have to have proof of your vaccination as well. Isn't that interesting? People are kind of being forced into that position of pass or play. And I'm guessing this is the kind of decision you should probably have figured out before you find yourself standing there going, "Uh uh-oh, now what? So if you don't know what your line in the sand is, maybe it's time to start sorting that out. And by the way, if you're not going to require vaccination of employees, J.D. Tusil says imposing such a condition on customers who can take their business elsewhere seems even less likely. But international travel, concerts, and sporting events may well be enough to make vaccine passports a regular feature for many people in the years to come. All involve moving through checkpoints that are frequently under government control or otherwise subject to relatively easy regulation. Iceland, for example, announced in March that all those who have been fully vaccinated against COVID-19 will be allowed to travel to Iceland without being subject to border measures, such as testing and quarantine. It also accepts proof of negative tests and of prior infection. Because there's not yet a single internationally accepted standard, Iceland's Directorate of Health rather specifies the information that certificates must contain the lists the acceptable languages, the permitted vaccines, and warns that border control will evaluate whether a certificate is valid. So showing up at a customs checkpoint and hope that your vaccination passport will be accepted is bound to pose headaches for travelers and the airlines transporting them. And to address that concern, the International Air Transport Association developed the Travel Pass. That's one of the competing standards for proof of health status. The app and the paper-based travel pass, which is being tested by 30 airlines, lets travelers upload proof of health testing, of health rather, testing, prior infection, or other government requirements. Like many proposals, it promises to let users control data and present only the minimum information required. Now, IATA's initiative, like Iceland's requirements, illustrates certain challenges faced by vaccine passport advocates. The International Air Travel Association offers, and Iceland accepts, paper documents as proof of vaccination, testing, or prior infection. But digital documents are considered superior to a paper-only vaccination certificate, which can be fraudulently obtained, easily lost or damaged, or simply difficult to read due to illegible handwriting. The World Health Organization pointed out in its first crack at guidance for such documentation. And the World Health Organization should know, since there's a thriving international black market in forged versions of the organization's yellow card certificates for travelers who need to demonstrate vaccination for yellow fever and other ailments. Now, J.D. Tusil says requiring digital certificates of everyone is impossible unless you're going to exclude the great many people who don't have smartphones. That leaves authorities in the position of setting tighter standards for vaccine passports that put them out of reach of much of the population, else loosening standards and accepting the reality that some documents will be bogus. Not that digital documents are without their own flaws. It only took 11 minutes for Albert Fox Kahn of Surveillance Technology Oversight Project to forge New York's Excelsior Pass which was introduced as a ticket to gain entry to major stadiums and arenas, wedding receptions, or catered and other events. The Excelsior Pass is based on IBM's Digital Health Pass technology, which means that its vulnerabilities might be shared by other implementations. Israel's Green Pass is reportedly similarly easy to counterfeit. It runs off a central database, has poorly implemented encryption, and constitutes a security disaster, according to Haaretz. Now, to be honest, even the most secure vaccine passport can only be as reliable as the information it has been given. 
If somebody compromises the sources of information about vaccinations or identity, the passport will blithely testify that it's all true. Ultimately, no matter how many standards are established and how many requirements legislated, authorities have to place some trust in the people presenting the documents and accept a degree of flaws, errors, and deliberate evasion. J.D. Tusil says such considerations are part of why, so far, there's been more talk of adopting vaccine passports than actual establishment of standards. The Biden administration has deliberately sworn off any interest of linking itself to a requirement that could turn into yet another battle. The European Union is creeping towards such a requirement, though it's coy about what it will look like or how it will be administered. Only Britain seems ready to take the plunge and use its existing National Health Service app as proof of vaccination, although the BBC emphasizes it's not clear if anyone outside the country will accept it. But the EU certificate is supposed to be unveiled this month, and New York's and Israel's passports remain in place despite their flaws. IATA's Travel Pass continues its trials and other initiatives are going through their paces even as people get vaccinated or gain immunity from prior infection and COVID-19 diminishes as a threat. Ultimately, a public demanding assurances about the health of foreign travelers and about the safety of crowded events will get such assurances, whether or not they're meaningful. So he says, given current trends... COVID-19 may have largely faded by the time vaccine passports are widely accepted, but the documents themselves will undoubtedly remain. It'll be interesting to see just what uses authorities find for them after the reason for their existence is forgotten. I mean, this, on the one hand, it's encouraging. It's taking a while for it to be implemented. That's probably a good thing. On the, uh, on the other hand, it is being implemented. And I agree with J.D. Tussil's analysis here. It's going to remain long after people have forgotten that COVID was ever a thing. So what do you do, right? Ultimately, this comes back to you and me and our ability to choose what we are going to do. And I don't know what your line in the sand is. You know, I'm I'm not categorically opposed to any vaccination anytime, anywhere. I think, you know, that's a decision that people have to be willing to weigh the risks, weigh the costs and decide, is this going to bring more risk or less risk by getting the vaccination? The place where I just unequivocally draw the line, though, is when it's being mandated. When someone is trying to force me, whether they're figuratively or literally holding a gun at my head and saying, you have to do this if you want to come here, go there fly this, you know, whatever the case may be. And so, like a lot of you, I'm trying to evaluate. Where do I draw that line? How much comfort am I willing to give up in order to maintain what remains of my freedom? This is The Brian Hyde Show.